I have never owned a remote-controlled drone of my own. But my now 20-something boys both had them at our home when they were teenagers. And after seeing the ease with which they flew their $50 drones around our backyard, zipping hundreds of feet into the sky, it seemed, before turning earthward only to ease up just in time to avoid crashing into our house, it would have been rather unremarkable as well as highly unlikely for one of those boys to run into the house, eyes dancing with excitement, and have said to me, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I was able to get my drone to hover 10 whole feet off the ground for about 30 seconds and then land it safely right back down from where it took off. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. And my reaction was also rather stoic and unimpressed at first, I'll confess, when I at first heard reporters exclaiming that a small remote-controlled spaceship, drone, helicopter of sorts, had lifted off the surface of the planet Mars this past Monday to a grand total height of 10 feet for about 30 seconds before landing right back in the same place. My reaction was lackluster until I encountered some information that literally shattered my preconceived frame of reference that as silly as it seems at this point was based solely on flying drones in our backyard with my kids. When I learned that because of the time delay in communications, no human being could use a little remote controller joystick from Earth for this mission on Mars, and that they basically used similar technology as seen on self-driving cars for flying itself, and when I learned that after they sent the signal for the tiny little drone, helicopter, spaceship, whatever the tiny little thing is, to perform this 30-second long, 10-foot high mission and then land, and that it was hours later, due to the delay in communications, before those here doing sending the signals for the mission could either confirm or deny whether or not this mission was successful, and when I learned that because the planet Mars's field of gravity is roughly one one-hundredth as strong as the Earth's gravity field, and so in landing, this tiny little space helicopter could not so much as bounce at all, or else it would ricochet off the surface of the planet Mars and be flung into the far reaches of outer space. But when I learned all of that information, to say the least my perspective was completely changed. My frame of reference was not the same any longer. And for one fleeting moment in time, when this new information sunk into my oh-so-limited frame of reference, I actually got goosebumps. I prefer to call them God bumps, because it was at that moment that the vastness of the universe and the weight of these incredible achievements of these engineers and scientists who had orchestrated this 30-second, 10-foot-high miracle, well, it showed me just how foolish my uninformed and initial reaction was to this bit of news. I won't forget it, because there was this holy moment almost a sacred space and place in time where my old ideas based on my 
personal but limited experience and information gave way to something much bigger, much more epic, much more to scale with the rest of the galaxy. Now, in our scripture lesson from Acts today, whether we like it or not, most of us bring with us some ideas and experiences when we read this story. Those of us who've been hanging around churches for a good portion of our lives have probably read this story. We've probably heard sermons about it. Some of us have preached them. And we have some really valuable things we have learned and drawn from this story. One of the best sermons I ever heard on this particular text, which was way ahead of its time, was when the legendary late Fred Craddock preached a sermon on this very text called, Can I Also Be Included? And since that sermon... Many faithful clergy colleagues have lifted up this story and this text in their own sermons, rightly advocating for the inclusion and equality of LGBTQ plus beloveds within the life of the church. I have given similar sermons on this very text and topic myself in years past. All of my past sermons and all the ones I've heard that were like this well, they had different points to make along the way. But a shared perspective was quite naturally to kind of take the perspective of Philip when telling the story. You know, the perspective of Christians. I mean, the text was written by Christians, about Christians, for Christians, and distributed among Christians and read today among Christians. I'm not saying any of this is wrong. After all, this is who we are. It's not wrong unless, well, unless we allow our narrow, particular perspective to blind us or to prevent us from seeing the stories of others, this one and other stories, from the other person's perspective. Now, according to a rather conventional Christian interpretation of this story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, Philip was faithful. Philip was already included. And now, good old Philip was proving just how inclusive, you know, how progressive, how very open-minded and big-hearted he was. And he offered this poor little black Ethiopian eunuch a chance to get to be a part of the inner circle the Christian circle, because, well, I mean, God is love, and love is love, and everyone is included. And okay, that last little part, love is love, and everyone's included, may not be all that conventional in many Christian cir circles today, sadly enough. But considering who I am preaching to, that part is conventional, at least to us, right? The idea that everyone is equal, and everyone should be treated as such, that everyone is included, that no one is excluded. In many pulpits, that would actually be a prophetic word. Sad enough. But not today. Not for us. That's not prophetic. That's not a stretch. That's not challenging. We're already there. But there's something in this story quite worth wrestling with. We know, according to the story in Acts, that this person was from Ethiopia and that they were a eunuch, one who had been castrated and set apart 
for the service of a royal official, in this case, Queen Candace. And the eunuch had been castrated so that they would not be a sexual threat to the women in the royal circles. So instantly, whether we mean to or not, so often we begin making assumptions that may not be entirely accurate about this eunuch in the story because our perspective is limited about what we know about life 2,000 years after this story. Well, that, and quite frankly, because we like to make ourselves and those most like us, in this case, Philip, the hero of every story. But as the Reverend Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor points out, the Ethiopian was someone wealthy enough to ride in a chariot educated enough to read Greek, devout enough to study the prophet Isaiah, and humble enough to know that he cannot understand what he is reading without help. He is also hospitable. When Philip speaks to him at the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Ethiopian invites the talkative pedestrian to join him in his chariot. For a modern parallel, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor says, Imagine a diplomat in Washington, D.C., inviting a street preacher to join him in his late model Lexus for a little Bible study. Now, friends, I'm going to say something here, fully realizing this may be a stretch for some of our perspectives about this story, and for that matter, about the church. Yes, Philip may have baptized this Ethiopian eunuch, but I believe that this black man with a most decidedly non-mainstream, non-heteronormative gender expression and sexual identity, I believe this Ethiopian eunuch just may have saved the church. The eunuch, after all, was the one in a position of power here, not Philip. It was the Ethiopian eunuch that had the wealth, the chariot, the portfolio brimming with all kind of riches. He was already a person of faith, we even find out in our own version of the story. And yet, the Ethiopian eunuch humbly included Philip in his company, a guy who basically a few weeks ago was a stinky, uneducated fisherman. He probably still was rather uneducated, and he probably still stunk like a combination of B.O. and fish guts, for all we know. And yet, the Ethiopian eunuch welcomes him into his fine chariot. Are we so sure Philip was doing the including here in this story? I mean, sure, the eunuch asked to be baptized, and Philip did the baptizing, but who really made this holy moment possible? At the very least, it was a 50-50 partnership, but in my view... I think it's probably more like 90-10, 90% the eunuch's decision, if not more. I would have loved to hear how the eunuch told the story to Queen Candace when he got home to the castle. I bet the eunuch's version of the story sounded a bit different than the one we've told one another for years. I'm not actually sure Christianity would have made it without this eunuch taking his story his experience, the one we have never heard, the way he chose to tell it back home to Queen Candace and the others in high places who had the network to get the word out about this Jesus fellow. And frankly, 
I'm not sure we'll make it as the church today if we don't pay close attention to the lesson that is staring us squarely in the face from this story. Namely, that straight, even straight, white, progressive Christians are not the hero of everyone else's story, no matter how wonderful we think we are. In fact, the circle doesn't even belong to us that we use to, quote, include others all the time. For this is God's world. This is God's circle and not ours to give. This, now, friends, relax, is not going to be a call-to-action sermon today. When we get done today, I'm not going to ask you to go and do something. I, I'm going to ask you instead to sit still, and I want you to feel something by the time we get done today. I want you feel it. I want you to feel it deeply and profoundly, and I hope that we can sit with that feeling when we finish up here long enough to let the feeling soak in deeply enough so that our perspectives have the opportunity to expand. Now let me be very clear, I, I will not be seeking to invoke guilt, either white guilt or any other kind of guilt. We're not after more guilt because as we've all witnessed, Guilt did not stop, for example, George Floyd from getting murdered in broad daylight in the middle of the street. And guilt won't fix what ails us either. Speaking of George Floyd, I would be remiss if I did not mention this in closing. My social media feeds erupted with many of my white colleagues and friends, including some of you, in, 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 uh, in jubilation over the verdict of the Chauvin trial. As you likely know by now, former officer Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges for the killing of George Floyd. After seeing all the jubilation by so many white folks, and I'll be honest, I, I felt it inside, I noticed many of my black clergy colleagues were relieved in their reactions on social media, but not nearly as overjoyed as my white colleagues and friends. Now, I happen to have a trusted longtime friend and black colleague who is always very patient with me and my whiteness and blindness, who has given me permission time and time again to ask him about these kinds of sensitive matters. And over the years, he's had to speak more than his share of difficult truths to me. So I reached out privately and I asked him yet again, why was this the case? Why were so many white people so happy and, and so many of my black colleagues, at least, it seems so hesitant. He didn't skip a beat. He quickly said, David, did you keep watching the news after the Chauvin verdict was announced? I said, no, I actually had other commitments. Uh, what did I miss? He said, within 30 minutes of the Floyd verdict being announced, a 15-year-old black girl named Makia Bryant was shot and killed by a police officer in Ohio. Yeah, she had a knife and she was in a scuffle with two other girls, but man, he said, white shooters who shoot up shopping malls get captured alive. A teenage girl with a knife in a fight with two other girls and she gets shot four times and killed? We black folks knew it would happen eventually. We just hoped it would take longer so we could at least get used to the feeling of one court case going the right way for a change. Friends, sometimes 
the way I'm telling the story really is great, or the way you're telling the story really is great. And, and sometimes, though, we just think it's great. We just think our story is the only story. Flying $50 remote-controlled drones with my teenage boys in our backyard was really great for making memories as a family. But these flights did nothing to advance the science of space exploration. That doesn't mean flying drones with my kids wasn't important. That was actually priceless time spent with my children. We made some memories. It does, however, point out the fact that I know virtually nothing about flying remote-controlled tiny spacecrafts on Mars. Just like I don't know a thing about being black or brown or gay or transgender or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or anything about the struggles women face every day or any one of a thousand other things for that matter. This really is the end of the sermon. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I am, however, going to ask you to realize that sometimes the best thing we can do is to educate ourselves on another person's perspective, on their story, the way they tell it, not the way we tell it, and to give their story the way they tell it, the credit it is due. We are not the hero of every story. Not all stories are ours to even tell. But as the prayer of St. Francis puts it, O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. I still say the Ethiopian eunuch saved Philip, and maybe even the church. I wonder... Who has been trying to save us if we weren't so busy being the center of everyone else's universe? May we discover the power of perspective. Amen.